Welcome back to a new episode of the All Things Croatia podcast. I'm your host, Stan Kozovac. Born and raised in Los Angeles, I'm now living in Zagreb and studying the Croatian language. Before we start, just do me a favor and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, as well as the Facebook and Instagram page. In this series, I'll be talking with people both in the homeland and around the globe who have connections to Croatia. We'll hear from startups, returning diaspora, musicians and athletes, and the biggest Croatian celebrities that will return my calls. But enough about me. Idemo dalje, and let's get started. All right, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Today, our special guest is Richard Gruica. Richard is a Croatian-American chef born in Jamaica. He started Good Eats and Meats, an online-based dining and socializing group that brings together lovers of food to break bread. Uh, Richard has also started Croatian food initiatives, such as Captivating Croatia Tours and Sites and Bites, which is a unique food and history walking tour of Dubrovnik. Uh, most recently, he opened up Fuego, a Latin fusion restaurant in Zagreb, Croatia's first. In this episode, we're going to learn about his inspiration for cooking Croatian cuisine and starting his many food-related projects. Richard, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for coming on. You know, a lot to delve into here. You've got a lot of different projects. <laughs> yeah, um, sometimes too many. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you're busy. You know, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. But I yeah, sort of want to um, get started by getting to know you a little bit more. Sure. Um, so, I under- as I understand, you were born in Jamaica to Croatian parents. Is that correct? Yeah, it's uh, I, 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 it's funny. Uh, I thought I was the only one, but I ended up finding out uh, there was another uh, Croatian Jamaican. So I'm not unique, but uh, <laughs> there's only uh, a couple of us. Um, but uh, yeah, it's a it's a unique story in the sense that uh, it's very random to have a Croatian in Jamaica. Um, but uh, my uh, dad um, had a company that he did with one of his uh, good buddies and uh who was also croatian and um they decided on having the company in jamaica and um you know uh, my parents uh, uh moved there and uh, started the company and were living there and then you know i i was the uh after effect of a weekend getaway <laughs> um and uh so i was born and raised in jamaica until uh, about eight and my parents uh, ended up splitting up and then my life took a drastic turn after that as well um but uh um yeah so you know jamaican croatian so it's a little <laughs> bit different yeah and yeah that's definitely unique although i guess there's a couple other of you guys as you mentioned but still i mean that's yeah. not you don't hear that every day where in croatia were your parents from uh, my parents are both from Zagreb, so um, they're Pravi Purgari. So they're, <laughs> for people that don't understand Croatian, a Purgar is a, a, a local person from Zagreb. So uh, both my parents were born and raised in Zagreb. Okay, cool, cool. And I mean, I imagine your upbringing was unique because that seems, at least in my opinion, three you know wildly different cultures. Maybe not wildly different, but you know, yeah. American, Croatian, and Jamaican. What was that like? What was your upbringing like? Well, I mean, the the American part honestly didn't happen until my parents split up. Um, Now, my dad was an American citizen. My mom was not. So I was actually born in Jamaica as an American born abroad because, you know, you you just have to have one parent. So I was officially American from the time I was born. Um, But uh, I really didn't have much of the American culture until my parents split up and moved. Uh, I ended up moving with my mom to Miami. Um, so that's where the American culture came in. I mean, I, 
um, honestly, she was uh, pretty sheltered too. I mean, I didn't have McDonald's until a few years after that. Uh, <laughs> so it was a little bit different for me. I mean, I'd never had Taco Bell until, uh, college. <laughs> so it was a little bit different. Um, well, that's uh, the most important time to have Taco Bell, I think. Probably yeah, exactly. <laughs> that turned out to be like the late night runs in, in multiple yeah. ways. Um, but, uh, you know, for me, it was uh, a situation where it wasn't so much American. It was more Hispanic, which is sort of the tie-in with the Latin thing. Because my mom ended up um, uh, leaving uh, Croatia, well, Yugoslavia at that time, and ended up going with her father and uh, to Venezuela. So they moved to mm-hmm. Venezuela, and he was working for Shell Petroleum there. And uh, so my mom, from the time she was in her late teens, was uh, actually raised in Venezuela. Um, so, you know, that, that was that. And then my dad, he ended up doing the sort of, hey, I, I'm not a big fan of Yugoslavia and ended up leaving, escaping, if you want to call it. And, uh, uh, you know, ended up in Germany and then from Germany ended up in the United States and in New York, just like most other Croatians. Mm-hmm. Um and uh so that was sort of like his american side of things so uh for me it was um definitely weird growing up uh hearing all the different languages and my dad was more of a proponent on not really speaking croatian much um he's like you know you're american i want you to speak english i want you to speak it with no accent i'm like well, dad, you screwed up. You had me born in Jamaica and I had a Jamaican accent. <laughs> so, you know, uh, it was, uh, my, my accent now is actually more, uh, not even mine. It was, uh, more what I would hear coming to the U.S. And I used to get teased for having, being a white kid speaking with a Jamaican accent that was Croatian. <laughs> um, so, uh, I ended up adopting a, a faux pseudo American accent, which is what you hear now. Wow. Really? So that started as just, you were, you know, purposely speaking like that and then it just became you know, natural. It was, it was a situation where I ended up going to school, uh, you know, grade school in, in the U.S. after coming here, uh, after coming to the U.S. when I was eight. And like I said, this was around the time uh, growing up in Miami, you had a lot of weird things happening. You had the Cubans coming in on the Mariel boat lifts. Uh, so I was actually one of the few people that actually spoke Spanish because my mom raised me speaking Spanish. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I used to go to the, um, you know, the principal office to go help because nobody could translate and you had all these new students coming in. So it was weird. You know, I used to get teased for speaking Spanish. I used to get teased for speaking, you know, Jamaican. And, uh, for me, it was just a lot easier to avoid any conflict, to, uh, to not get bullied and stuff like that, to just start talking normal American, quote unquote, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, that was, uh, what I adopted to basically avoid getting picked on all the time. Hmm. That's interesting because especially nowadays, or at least in my experience, you know, it, I wish I spoke more languages. I mean, I grew up only speaking English and then, you know, I'm here living in Croatia and, you know, yeah. here in Croatia and Europe, you know, everyone speaks, you know, two, three, even four or five languages sometimes. Yeah, they're polyglots. It's crazy. Yeah. And then you go to the U.S. and they can barely speak English sometimes. So, yeah. Yeah, it's weird how something that can be, you know, you can be bullied for now later in life, you know, you wish that you could be speaking more languages. Yeah. And it's funny because it did put a, uh, I should say it did put a a crimp on my language skills because I used to get teased for speaking Spanish. And uh, so even at a certain point, I actually told my parents, I'm like, I'm not speaking Spanish. And I didn't speak Spanish 
for like four or five years. I mean, I intentionally wow. just avoid it. I mean, you're in Miami and Miami is predominantly Hispanic, but I, I even have an aunt and a uh, family in Spain and I used to go and visit and I was like, nope, not speaking Spanish. And wow. it, honestly, it didn't change until I started being interested in girls into my early teens and then it changed very quickly. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's funny how, how that happens. And now I wish I would have spoken Croatian more. I wish I would have spoken Spanish more. I mean, I'm fluent in them, but I, I wish I would have been even more fluent and um, you know, coming here to Croatia in the beginning, I mean, it was, I understood, but then I spoke horribly and, um, I even still speak with a Naglazak, like a heavy accent, but, uh, compared to some Americans, it's a, not heavy at all. But even for me, when I'm like, I know I'm never going to get accepted here as, you know, a Croatian. I'm always, it's, it's funny because, uh, I even have people call me here the American, and then when I'm in the U.S., I'm not the American. I'm, oh, you're the Jamaican or you're the Croatian. So it's like you just never fit in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's always been one of the plights of, you know, sort of the diaspora community that, you know, you always feel like you don't have the right identity and you have a different identity in whichever country that you're in. Yeah, and that's, for me, one of the reasons why I love, I know there's big fans and uh, people that aren't fans of EU, but I mean, I think it's it's a beautiful thing that you have something like that, whether you support it or not, but I just think that it, it just makes, uh, you know, learning about the different cultures, experiencing them and traveling around so much easier, and, uh, you know, for me, I love that you can actually go to three countries in a day and speak so many different languages. I mean, that's cool for me. Hmm. So. Yeah, definitely. That's cool. Um, so growing up, were you, was there a Croatian community at all in Jamaica? Uh, no, virtually none in Jamaica. I mean, there was like a handful, but it was, I, I, I wish that I would have, uh, grown up in an area that had more. So I always get jealous when I hear about friends that grew up in Chicago, grew up in New York, grew up in Pittsburgh or Cleveland, and they have mm-hmm. huge communities, they have a Croatian church, they have, you know, um, uh, you know, the kids do activities and everything else, tamburica, klapa, whatever. I, I never experienced that. So, I mean, I don't, I, my parents never said, oh, here's some Croatian songs to learn or anything like that. No. And it was funny. I, I was in the actual opposite because there are more Serbs uh, in Miami and we used to go, um, there was a Yugoslav club and then, you know, after the war, we're like, Oh, where, where's everybody going to go and everything. <laughs> so it, it changed because I mean, I, it, the community was cool, but I mean, it was definitely, uh, more Serbian, Bosnian, that type of thing. And, uh, I mean, even now in Miami, which is where I grew up, I mean, there's, I could probably name 30 families that I know that are Croatian and that's it. So <laughs> there's not a lot. Well, then when did you first start getting involved in, you know, the Croatian community? Um, You know, for me, it was always something I would have to venture to say I'd be more like a tourist because I would actually come. My mom was a single mom after my mom and dad split up and she, you know, would work really hard and we worked really hard. I mean, I used to work at the flea markets on the weekends with my mom and uh, we would save up money and then she'd send me to Europe uh, every probably two years, three years. And, you know, one year I'd go with my dad, another year I'd stay, and then another year I'd go to Europe. And uh, she'd save up money so I could actually come to Croatia and spend the whole summer. And uh, so I would always see it more from, you know, a kid, teenager side. You know, let me go hang out with friends. Let me go, um, you know, go to the beach every day 
get sunburned, you know, have uh, crappy food. And um, it wasn't until uh, I started working with a really cool organization called Slow Food. And um, Slow Food is um, basically sounds what it sounds like. It's the opposite of fast food, but it's basically reinforcing old food traditions and food cultures. And uh, I got invited to speak here in uh, Dubrovnik for one of their extensions. They did a, like a Balkan version. And I actually came down and this was in my, oh God, uh, mid thirties, uh, probably a little bit later than that. And, um, and you know, I got actually to experience Croatia from not a tourist standpoint, actually finding out about the people and uh, the products and all the stories that are behind uh, everything and uh, all the passion, all the love, all the dedication. And that's where I really fell in love with Croatia. And I said, I need to do more. Um, I need to spend more time here. Um, I need to reinforce it. So that's when I actually, I wasn't even a Croatian citizen at that point. Uh, it's funny because when I was born, my parents never registered me in the book, if you want to call it. And uh, being born in Jamaica, I never had automatic uh, citizenship because they didn't have any diplomatic ties. So what should have been an easy process with my parents, uh, since both of them were Croatian and all the way back, it goes back Croatian. It should be a couple months. It actually took me three years to get my citizenship. Wow. So it was uh, a long process. But uh, uh, that was sort of like the, the telltale for me was like, I want to spend more time here. And now, look, I'm here eight, nine months of the year. I still go back to the U.S. for other work pur purposes and to see family and to check on my properties and that type of thing. But uh, I'm still now I'm spending majority of my time here in Croatia. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, Dubrovnik and uh, I know you have one of your um, tours, one of your you know yeah. food initiatives there, the Sites and Bites Tours. Is it that yeah. one? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, Dubrovnik is, you know, when you think of Croatia, even as a, a foreigner or somebody that doesn't know about Croatia. Um, Dubrovnik is probably the number one thing that people know about because it's, you know, the city that when, you know, uh, you go and go visit Croatia, I mean, that's the city that you go to. Um, now, what happens is, is that there was uh, an overabundance of crappy tourism and just really not thought out stuff that you'd have a gazillion tour guides. They do basically the same tour. They'd be, it's like they trained from the same person and it's, uh, it's almost like verbatim. One person could just duplicate the next and it's exactly the same. And you pay your 20 euros and they walk you around a little bit and then you're done. And I was like, no, there has to be more. And with the food story and the history, uh, there's so much interesting cultural history in Dubrovnik that even the Dubrovnik uh, residents don't know about. Um, and I wanted to showcase that. I wanted to basically raise awareness for how unique Dubrovnik is and why Dubrovnik is such a cool city. And uh, I said, this can be done by still showcasing the history and the architecture and the scenery, but do it in a way that people can enjoy uh, some of the amazing wines. So uh, on the tour, we featured Decanter award-winning wines, which Decanter is like in London. It's the premier wine awards in the world. And, um, you know, there's some really good wineries that are local. So we serve uh, a wine from Konavle. That's a Cervic winery. That's amazing. Uh, we serve uh, another one from Dingach, which is uh, a nice, amazing Plavats Mali as well. 
Um, and then we have uh, Poshi from uh, Korchula. So, you know, we, we feature some really amazing wines on that. But the idea behind it is is uh, still see it, but now you get to stop, eat, drink. Uh, so the idea behind it for me was finding um, amazing tour guides. So like right now, um, we have a handful of tour guides and each one in their own way is pretty unique. But my main tour guide, he's going for his PhD in Enology, so in wine. Um, so if you want an expert, he's as close as you can get. And I guarantee you there's not many tour guides down there that are going for their PhD in wine. Um, but he really talks about, and he's passionate about the wine and the wine production. So people aren't just getting a basic history tour. They're getting, you know, sometimes too much, you know, but he, he bases it on the people. If they're really whinies, then, uh, they, he talks a lot about production. He talks a lot about, uh, the varietals and everything else. So it's not just a basic tour, but then we showcase, um, some beautiful food places that actually show old traditional food, uh, but just done in a nice way. So one of my favorites is Kopun. Uh, so it's a great location. It's right at the stairs in Dubrovnik. And they just do some beautiful food, traditional recipes just done in a nice way. And um, the tour is three hours and people get to sit down at three different spots and just eat and drink and then walk around some more. So by the time they're done, they've seen the city. Uh, they know what they need to do. And actually, most of the time, people end up going back to the places for lunch or dinner after the fact. So, you know, we're also trying to help the local economy and um, also showcase Dubrovnik in a slightly different way. And so far, it's been you know, very well received. Huh. Yeah. It sounds like a great time. I mean, so it's more of a full immersion type thing than just, yeah. you know, hearing facts about the city. Yeah, totally. And I mean, that's what I, we try and talk about the stuff. So like when our tour guide is walking, so to give you an example for the people that have been there, you go down to the old Harbor. Uh, I mean, it's weird. I mean, we, we get a lot of people that just get a little shocked by it. I mean, I have, uh, we have motar that grows, it's a seagrass that grows along uh, the walls and it's uh, usually within a meter off of the sea uh, surface and uh, we just pick it and we give it to the people here try it and they're like what what do you mean try it you just picked it off the, you didn't even wash it and like no just try it you know so it's full of uh, salt and the, and the sea and and then they have it and I go listen you're gonna see it in other places throughout you'll have people that pickle this and they're gonna serve it in their restaurants and they're like oh okay cool and then you know people really go that's different and then when you walk around i mean we talk to people uh give you an example americans i mean they know what a caper is but virtually no one has ever seen how a caper grows so all around dubrovnik and all around uh, croatia you have caper bushes and they just grow randomly i mean and we show them as they're walking i'm like look what's that flower what's that plant and they don't know and they're like caper and then they're like, really you know and then they just they love that and um, you know, there's just so many cool things uh, in Dubrovnik and around Dubrovnik and the history uh, that we showcase. Uh, I mean, like, look, I'll, I'll throw you for, I didn't know if you're going to be tested, but uh, uh, do you know why Dubrovnik was as wealthy as a republic as it was? Why did it become a trading center? I mean, there's a lot of people don't even know it that live there. Hmm. Uh, I'll pretend I don't know, which I don't. And let okay. you tell me. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, think about it. Um, if you think historically, I mean, it's, it's not a amazing location. I mean, the city itself is, but from when you're trading it, it really doesn't, there's nothing that is produced there. Really. There's nothing that is, uh, you know, uh, that's like, oh, we got to get this. No, but what ended up happening, if you think about during the days, why was, uh, Dubrovnik such a, a strong Republic, uh, Ragusa? 
um, and why it had such a strong naval influence was um, uh, just north of Dubrovnik, you have Ston. And Ston is uh, one of the sea salt areas. So you have uh, producing salt. Um, so salt back in you know the Middle Ages, ancient times, was the, a very valuable commodity because that's how you preserved your foods. You, why do you think prosciutto and uh, all the sausages and everything else, you needed to find a way. There was no you know, refrigeration like we are used to now, but you had to preserve it in an ancient way. And salt was a big way of pre uh, preserving your foods. And uh, salt, you remember the saying, I don't know if you know it, but it's like, you're worth your weight in salt. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was a very expensive uh, commodity. And uh, that's one of the reasons why any place that was close to where sea salt was being produced was a, a trading center. And that's what happened with the Browning. Um And then it started growing from there. And then you had other reasons, of course, why it just grew. But that was one of the main reasons historically why it was so popular. Huh. And you're, so you're saying things like this are going to be, you know, sort of the experiences that you're getting on these tours. Yeah. And then we talk about the, you know, the typical architecture that you'll find and why are there always three level homes uh, and the historical reasoning behind it. And then like in Dubrovnik as well, I mean, you have to think about uh, some of the cities that we have here in Croatia. Uh, everybody thinks about like England being, you know, uh, the, you know, the, the king and the queen or whatever and the, the monarchy and everything. But yeah, they're walking on dirt and slop and, you know, and they might be in their fancy gowns and everything. But like Dubrovnik at that time was having marble streets with indoor plumbing where, you know, in other parts of Europe, they're throwing their crap outside the window and then dropping it down to the street. And, you know, it, it, it just begs to be explored and go, huh, things were a little bit different here and things were, you know, relatively uh, much more pristine in a lot of ways. So I, I like to showcase that go, huh, you know, did you know that we had indoor plumbing? Did you know we had this? And, you know, that's pretty cool. And, you know, so there's a lot to be seen. Yeah, that's, that's a really cool part of the full immersion process. I want to backtrack a little bit um, and go back to your, you know, cooking yeah. roots. When did you start getting into cooking? And uh, <laughs> um, if Pretty much from the time I, I could walk, um, my dad was a very avid cook. Uh, he was actually a trained chef, but never worked as a trained chef. Like he went through the whole program because he just found it interesting. And this was while he was already, you know, doing his whole profession and everything. But he just never wanted to do it at his job. Um, I mean, he was actually a mechanical engineer, uh, but uh, he just had a passion about food. So, I mean, like for me, uh, my dad passed away, unfortunately, when I was pretty young in my mid 20s. But uh my vision of my dad was basically him wherever he was at. He had two or three pots on the stove with always some type of stew or soup going. Um, and it didn't matter if it was summer or winter. There was always a stew or soup that he was making for everybody and just passing it out. And then he was making sauces. So, you know, when people are doing powders and bouillons, my dad's like, hell no, we're making our own stock. We're making our own demi-gloss. I'm like, you know, so <laughs> it was a, a totally different world. And I, I wish I would have really appreciated what he was doing. I mean, here he was uh, telling me, hey, uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of time with him. And even when I did, I was like, oh, I'm going to go, you know, to the beach with my friends. Uh, he's like, hey, let's go make some sausage. And I'm like, who the hell wants to make sausage? I'm like, no. And then now I would, I, I, I would cut off my fingers to be able to make uh, sausage with my dad. 
So, you know, it's just funny in retrospect what you what you see. But I mean, my dad and my dad's best friend, uh, my dad's best friend actually had uh, the top uh, French restaurant in Miami. So I used to work there on the weekends. And uh, I mean, I've always had either a knife in my hand or prepping something or helping out in the kitchen, uh, you know, doing that ever since as far as I can remember. I mean, now he would have probably gotten arrested for having a kid in the kitchen because, I mean, I was doing (laughs) stuff at, you know, 10 years old uh, that now, you know, you have to be an adult to do, you know. So uh, child labor laws were not not really strictly enforced back then. Yeah, I'm sure. What was your, um, what were some of your favorite dishes to cook back then? Well, I mean, I got to tell you, it's it's funny how it revolves. I never thought I was going to be going into culinary. I actually did it more like my dad. I loved it. I had a passion for it. I appreciated it. Um, I remember there was this one restaurant in Miami that uh, just had it's a simple dish, but it was so good. And it was uh, it was a restaurant called Shells. I don't even know if they still exist, but it was a um, they used to make a pasta with a pink sauce pink vodka sauce with shrimp and i'm like you know Mm. that's like one of the i mean you have it on a gazillion menus but i was like this tastes so good and i said i'm gonna recreate the dish so i even told my mom i'm gonna make it so we don't have to go there and spend the money for it i'm gonna do it she's like yeah whatever and i uh, worked on it and i did it and i got it down to it tastes exactly like it i was like okay i can do this this is fun and um it was more so for me at teenagers uh, i just wanted to impress some girls and um you know uh, you know get to their heart through their stomach i guess or something like that <laughs> but uh for me it was just uh you know how cool is it you like you know you're in high school and instead of taking a girl out to you know hey let's grab a burger and a movie i'm like you know i'd talk to my mom i'm like hey mom can i have a a, a girl come over and i want to cook something and she would like disappear for a little bit i mean it was nothing crazy going on i mean but i would make you know dinner and yeah i would slip in some wine and we're in high school so yeah don't don't <laughs> moms don't get mad at me but you know it was, it was cool from that standpoint it would be a way for me to like go impress the ladies and uh that's how it started basically so. yeah definitely standing out from probably the majority of other dates too yeah yeah so um, uh, that, and, that was cool and then when did you start good meats and eats which i think was your first food initiative project if uh I'm not good eats was uh, ooh, uh let's fast forward quite a few years I, I mean i ended up i was supposed to be going to law school and like two weeks before starting law school i had an epiphany i'm like this is not going to make me happy and uh, i ended up going to like an advanced program for uh culinary because i had a lot of the um the background with my uncle and everything else. And we sort of fibbed on my um, CV, even though uh, it was uh, the program, you actually had to do an actual practical and show them that you could cook before you could get into the program. So that was easy peasy. But uh, um, all the people that I went to culinary school with were already getting their second or third degrees. And here I am going for, um, you know, I finished college, but I mean, in terms of like my culinary stuff, I was about 10 to 15 years younger than everybody else in the program. And uh, so it was pretty cool, but also challenging. Uh, But uh, to fast forward, I mean, I cooked in kitchens. I I started from, you know, grunt chef all the way up to executive chef and um, had my own place as well. But then uh, I got married and um, basically wanted to have more time with the family. And uh, so I made the decision to get out of the kitchen, but still be related to it. So I actually worked for a big 
the largest food service distributor in the U.S. called Cisco Foods. So not the computer one, but S-Y-S-C-O. And I worked as a corporate chef and um, did management for them. And uh, for me, uh, Good Eats was born out of thinking of finding a way to increase business and sales. So I used to travel and go to different cities and work for them. And I'm like, you know what? I always used to go and eat by myself, which is fine. I never had a problem with that. Or, um, But I was like, there's got to be a way that we can leverage business and also getting people together. So Good Eats was a way to, uh, in the beginning, was bringing extra customers to some of our client base. And, you know, when I do a... I'd go away for a weekend or something like that, and I'd do an event in Atlanta. I'd pick a restaurant that was one of our clients and actually say, you know, talk to them and say, hey, would you mind me putting a dinner together? And I could bring some people in. And in the beginning, people were like, what are you talking about people? I mean, like, I don't know. I said, look, I'm going to just put this up, and we might get five people to show up, or we might get 50. I don't know. And, uh, you know, a lot of people were like, this is weird, but uh, we did it. And uh, it started out like... I had 30 members and 300 members and 3,000 members and 30,000 members. Um, So, I mean, like right now, we're still going strong in uh, seven different cities. I don't even know the exact number right now. It's probably close to 150, 200,000. I got to check the numbers right now. But it's, you know, and we just basically get people together. Sometimes Americans are totally different. Then Croatians, I got to say, doing that type of model here would not work. Um, mm. You know, Americans have no problems. Hey, I'm in a new city. I just took a new job. Let me go, you know, try and make some friends. Uh, you know, here it's either work or people you know, uh, that type of thing. But in the U.S., they're a little bit more open to it. So um, I would do these things and you just get random people. And what's funny is uh, now through Good Eats over the years, I mean, we've had marriages, divorces, kids from people that have met at our events, um, you know, and even now I have uh, some of my long-term friends or people that I met um, through my Good Eats group. So, you know, it's it, it, it's it's really cool. It was basically uh, a conduit for me to start doing other stuff, just getting people together and making people happy over food and drinking and having a good time. Wow, that's pretty cool to now grow to almost what two hundred thousand you said or, or somewhere. Yeah, it's there. it's crazy. I got I I honestly I should do a better job of keeping track of all the numbers, but uh, with me doing all this stuff, I mean honestly, I've uh, haven't been as on top of it as I should. So, uh, luckily, I have you know quite a few organizers and stuff like that. So yeah, they they sort of handle the day to day stuff. Mm-hmm. I want to get into two other of your projects before uh, we talk about Fuego. Yeah. But the Captivating Croatia Tours and the Gypsy Table pop-up events. Can yeah. you talk a little right. about those two? All right. So Captivating Croatia um, came about after leaving Cisco and actually uh, going back into the professional world. I worked for another company, and which I can't name for legal reasons. But uh, anyhow, I'll tell you, it, it was a sad story that worked out well. Um, I ended up having an owner at a company that took advantage of some... Um, some business that I brought on and uh, basically we had to, uh, I had to sue him (laughs) uh, for uh, loss commissions and some other stuff. And uh, we ended up uh, settling out of court, but part of my arrangement was that I got paid uh, salary and commissions for two years, but I had a non-compete. So my non-compete would not allow me to go back into the same type of typical field. 
So here I am getting a salary for two years, but I can't work in essence. And I was like, screw this. Uh, so this was the opportunity and uh, the ability for me to start captivating Croatia. So I wanted to spend more time in Croatia. And the idea came about really showcasing all the amazing stuff here in Croatia. And I started putting together these gourmet food and wine vacations. So I'm like, heck, I might as well be in Croatia and research and learn. So one year was mostly spent here um, just going around, getting to know the country, really experiencing it from a firsthand knowledge, uh, talking to people, hey, what's cool, what's not, uh, which places are doing really good food, who are the nice people. And I spent the mass majority of that um, in and around uh, Dubrovnik in the southern area. So pretty much from the border of Croatia all the way to uh, Korsula, I know every road. I've driven it all. I've gone every turn down every dead end road just to see what was there for for the get-go and so that's why captivating croatia came about out of uh first was sites and bites tours and then captivating croatia grew out of that uh, because i had people that would go on the dubrovnik tours and say can you do something else for us and then can you do some wine trips or whatever and then boom um uh, started doing that and uh so that's how captivating croatia grew but instead of just being a regular vacation we do these hand curated I mean, every place I've gone to, every place I know, I mean, when, when I'm taking my guests there, I mean, I'm greeted like now they're old, old family friends. I, the places that we go to, hugs, kisses, uh, how's the kids, uh, everything else catching up. And then we, you know, I introduce them to the guests and everything. But we have a really hands-on experience. It's usually private, um, private time. So if we're going to a winery, it's just us. If we're going to a restaurant, we book at the restaurant. Um, and we have uh, really a nice group of guests that come in, but they get to experience Croatia from a very intimate standpoint. So even if it's peak tourist season, we're not around a lot of tourists. Um, you know, we get to experience things directly with the winemaker, directly with the, the producer. Um, so it's a totally different uh, experience for everybody. Uh, and then also the um, the places that we visit, they love it because they get to see people in a totally different way. It's not your typical wine tasting where a tour bus pulls out, 50 people come out, they get three glasses of wine, and then they're at the door in, a, in an hour. No, we, we want to just enjoy, relax, take advantage of the pomalo mentality and just take it easy. And you know, instead of spending an hour, we might spend half a day at that place and just really get to know the people that are producing the products. And to me, that's really important. And how long then has that been going for? Well, uh, now we're in our sixth year. Okay. So, uh, you know, COVID, uh, we should subtract uh, two years from that <laughs> because uh, pretty much uh, not much happened during that time. But uh, right now there's telltale signs. I mean, still this year has been okay, uh, not great uh, because of now the recent conflict in the Ukraine um, and and Russia. Uh, groups have been a little bit slow in coming back. Uh, we do have a lot of guests that are coming privately, you know, like families or individuals, which is great. It's a good sign. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think next year is going to be even better. Uh, we'll see what's going to happen with the, the global recession, but uh, I still think it's going to be okay. It might affect things a little bit. But um, for me, it's just now... To give you an example, I mean, I'm just learning about Croatia myself. Uh, uh, I'm actually putting together the first tour in Slavonia, uh, which is not a super 
it's a great area to visit, but it's not on everybody's radar, uh, especially for tour companies. Everybody focuses on the coast and everything else. So we're actually going out of season. We're doing uh, fall and we're going to Slavonia. So uh, uh, the tour is booked out. We have 20 people coming. I'm very excited and, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to being in a new area. Hmm. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. You don't hear, I mean, one out of season, but yeah, also in Slavonia too. Yeah. So, there. but like right now we're, uh, I, I ended up, uh, I've probably done 12 trips to Slavonia just doing research and the 12 trips have been over two years. Uh, so whenever I have time, I go and, I mean, I think my first Slavonia trip was like five years ago. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, it, it's a, it's not a quick process and I don't want to put it together until I actually have all the bits and pieces together and get to know everybody. Like I don't go to places that we've never visited. I don't put stuff together that comes from recommended from somebody else unless I actually go there and meet the people and, uh, do a game plan and do something else. So yeah, this trip is going to be fabulous. I'm, I'm super psyched about it. Yeah, that sounds really cool. And then where did the gypsy table pop up the events? Uh, uh, the gypsy table was, uh, honestly, it's a sad story, but it worked out well. Um, so my mom, as we talked about earlier, was from Zagreb and, you know, grew up here um, to a, um, uh, for a good portion of her of her youth, but she also needed to come back and she would come back periodically, but um, she wanted to spend more time here. So she was retired and uh, the plan was that I was going to have the kids here and my mom and we we're going to spend the whole summer together. And this was about uh, six years ago and um, about 10 days before she was going to be coming. We had everything planned. We had what we we're going to do the whole summer uh, was going to be just fun, me, mom, and the kids. And she ended up passing away suddenly. And, um, you know, it really shifted things. I mean, we had the funeral here in Mirogoy and in, in Zagreb. And, uh, you know, the whole summer was weird. Um, but my mom, the one thing that she was awesome about was just having a great time and wanting everybody to have a great time. So, I actually did the first event sort of like a, uh, a tribute to her and in her honor. And uh, I also wanted to tie in a charity because that was always as important to my mom. So the first event was a, a charity uh, for the dog shelter in Dubrovnik. And we actually did it in Dubrovnik. We did it in the Lazaretti, which is the, um, the quarantine area. And, um, uh, you know, it was... Uh, all the different people that I told you about, the winemakers, the chefs, and everything that I got to know, I asked them for help, and I said, hey, can you support this crazy idea of mine and putting together a one-night pop-up restaurant in a weird location that doesn't have a kitchen, and let's just have a great time. And, you know, I ended up getting a nice handful of people uh, to really support and do it, and everybody loved it, and uh, that was sort of the idea behind the gypsy table and the reason behind it two people ask me too because there's a lot of bad connotations when you mention gypsy and um, uh, so for those that speak Croatian my mom's Nadimakra nickname was Tsiganka and Tsiganka means gypsy and uh, the reason why is that my mom was had super black hair black eyes and dark skin so in, in a way it was sort of her nickname not also in the most favorable way either probably but you know that she was uh, nicknamed the gypsy uh and then also with me being by bi, you know bicontinental and uh doing 
all having my food groups in seven different cities and just doing stuff everywhere, I was like a, a food gypsy. I was going everywhere and putting events together, cooking, uh, doing everything. So I just didn't think gypsy, food gypsy was a great name. Uh, so that's where the table came in, that it was always like a roaming table. And uh, I sort of did that as an ode to my mom. And even the logo has a caricature of her face. And uh, that's the idea of gypsy tables. So now it's tied into and morphed that I do gypsy tables to um, whenever I have a chef tour. Usually if I can pull it off, we do a gypsy table event during every chef tour, which are these captivating chef tours. And then we focus on having our chef that comes in from the U.S. showcasing some of his food and specialties or their food and specialties. And then we also have partner up with some of the best chefs in Croatia and best producers and showcase all the amazing product here. So it's actually grown to the point that now I'm also doing them in the U.S. and I'm showcasing now Croatian products over there, wines, olive oils. So I did one last year in September for a really big food and wine festival, which we're doing again this September. And we had over uh, 40 different Croatian items that we used and featured at the dinner, which was cool, very cool. So I loved being able to show that. Yeah, that's really cool. What kind of reviews were they getting? Um, everybody loved it. I mean, we were, it's funny, I, if I had wood here, I'd knock on wood. Uh, we were, for the food festival, the quickest selling event. We sold out tickets last year in 20 minutes. We sold out. Uh, this year, it was like a day. Uh, so we were also one of the fastest uh, selling events. And, um, you know, so for me to hear that, it's cool. Uh, and also, it's even more Shocking because we don't tell anybody the menu, so they don't know what they're eating. Um, we don't tell them the location because they don't know where it's going to be. So it's, it's a little bit of a mystery, but some people are really open to it and some people are not. But the people that are open to it, then they get a really big surprise. So like in here, we've done it, like I said, in Lazareti, which is the quarantine. So it was really cool. We, we turned it into like a little Turkish bazaar. Um, I've done it at the aquarium in Dubrovnik. So we actually did a seafood dinner where you were actually eating what was, <laughs> what you were viewing in the glass, uh, in the, in the tanks, uh, which is sort of a little bit macabre, but I have a dark sense of humor. Um, <laughs> and, uh, we've done one in a church. Uh, we've done them in an abandoned building. Uh, we did one in a condemned building that was going to be ready to be demolished. Uh, wow. Luckily, not on the day that we're doing it, but it was pretty cool that, you know, we just had some some lights and you're in this empty shell of a building. So, I mean, it's just we never do it in a restaurant. So that's one of the weird things. Um, I know I could make my job a lot easier and logistically a lot easier, but I think that that's sort of like boring. Um, so I always like a challenge. And if anything, it just makes it harder, but then more gratifying because you can actually say, look, we pulled this off in some place. Like I did one in a beach and I mean, we're literally on the sands of a beach and there was nothing around and we pulled off this beautiful dinner for a hundred people right on the beach. So wow. yeah, those settings alone, I'm sure would make it worth it. That's oh, really yeah. cool and different vibe than just eating at a restaurant. Yeah. And, and the cool thing is too, especially like here in Croatia is like when we do them, people actually love not knowing where it is. So I will always showcase stuff that is off the beaten path. So I did one and actually it wasn't Dubrovnik. We did one in Molunat. So for those of you that know Dubrovnik, it's like the furthest south part before you get to pretty close to the Montenegro border. And um, 
we did it uh, at this place that typically is a like a little beach fried fish shack and we took it over for the night and converted it into this really great place and we actually had the people eating on the banks of the water that mm. normally people are sunbathing and people would never look at it as a place for you know a fine dining meal and you know literally in three hours we converted it from that into this place where you know we had a michelin star chef cooking right there and it was it was pretty cool to see that come and happen so that's pretty pretty mm. fun yeah, that sounds awesome. Um, you, you mentioned you're living most of the year in Zagreb now. Yeah. And you recently yes. opened up, uh, how long ago? Only, what, like less than uh, a year ago, Fuego. Yeah, less than a year ago, November, we opened uh, Fuego. Yeah. What was your inspiration so, behind opening that up? <laughs> uh, honestly, uh, my stomach. Uh, because <laughs> when when I come to Croatia, I love Croatia. Look, I, I, I'm one of the biggest fans of Croatia. I'm one of the biggest supporters. I'm always going to be pushing Croatia with, you know, wherever I am, I'm always mentioning, I, you know, to the point that people get sick of hearing about Croatia. Um, but while it has so many positives, there are a few negatives and we're not going to go into all the other stuff. I'm just talking about the negatives from one standpoint. And for me, it's getting so much better now. But if you think about it 10 years ago, five years ago, the cuisine was very limited. So, when I mean limited, it's not limited in a bad way. So that's what I'm trying to tell people too. If you want to get your rostil and fish on a grill, God, we got lots of that. But in terms of variety, it was pretty not, not a lot of variety. So when you'd come, especially to Zagreb, you would think that it would be more variety, but it really wasn't. I mean, like right now uh, in Zagreb, there's uh, no Vietnamese restaurant. There's one Korean place. Uh, there's three Indian places. There's two Thai places that are owned by the same place. So if I can throw that off in a city that's a million people and that's all we have for a variety, that's not a good sign. So I'm, I'm happy to say that there's more stuff happening. Like right now, Asian food is starting to get more popular. Sushi places are getting more popular. Mm-hmm. Um, so the things that were lacking for me when I would come here for extended stays are Latin food and Asian food. Um, so it's good to see in that time Thai places open up. Uh, um, like I said, one Korean place open up. Um, but uh, from Latin side, there's just really not a lot of options, and it's mostly Mexican, and even Mexican at that, it's not really good. Mm. Um, so I had the opportunity to have a really sm- small locale that wasn't going to be super cost of a burden to try and do, and... Um, the idea came about to to do Latin. I mean, it wasn't our my first idea either. I mean, I had a few other things, uh, even as stupid as doing like a sandwich shop. Like I love hoagies. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, yeah, Croatians are going to love hoagies. I was like, yeah, I'll do like, <laughs> you know, and then I heard about like how Subway has failed miserably here. I was like, come <laughs> on. I mean, I still, I mean, I'm not going to say Subway is the best, but it's just, you know, the concept is still a good concept. Uh, but that's where I came up with Fuego. And uh, the idea is showcasing different cuisines from South America, Latin America, and uh, doing them in a way that we're approachable. I mean, like right now, our most expensive thing, and if you, if you calculate the difference, it's about $10. Uh, so our main dish is all these are bowls or, um, you know, sort of like Chipotle-esque. You can go in and order, you know, you know, pork beef chicken, and we have them flavored in different ways, and you can get your different 
accompaniments and that type of thing. And, um, you know, it's been really well received. We have a lot of people that come in, never had anything like it before. They don't know what to expect. They don't know what to order. So a lot of it's handholding. But then once we do and we explain it to them, I mean, we're making everything fresh in house. Uh, all our appetizers are made in house. We're making empanadas. I mean, it's so crazy. We, right now we can't keep up. So now I have a guy who's actually making empanadas during our working hours and we have already a small kitchen and he's like, the guys in the kitchen are just like bumping into each other. It's, it's not the best. I mean, we need to expand, but uh, we're doing the best that we can to keep up because I hate being out of stuff. It's one of my big pet peeves. Um, so, uh, you know, we're also doing deliveries. And uh, right now, actually, Volt uh, said that we're one of their uh, most busiest uh uh, places for deliveries in Zagreb so that's a wow. that's a good sign too so um you know I'm excited I, I mean like right now uh we were actually going to be closed for Gwalishnia and we're having s people told me that Zagreb dies down and we've decreased a bit but uh it's not enough to justify closing so we're actually going to stay open and see how Gwalishnia goes for the next couple of weeks so never know uh, I'm pretty cool well I mean personally coming from being born and raised in Los Angeles you know, I miss Mexican food when I'm over yeah. here. And, but I know also Latin food as a whole is, you know, lacking that scene in not only Zagreb, but, you know, all of Croatia. Oh, and I, I'm not even going to say all of Croatia. I mean, all of Europe. I mean, I looked mm. around. I mean, there's really not a lot of uh, Latin places that would be even good, uh, even in other places. So uh, one of my best compliments that I get are people that are from those countries actually from Peru and they try our Peruvian they should go damn this is good you know or uh, I have somebody that tries our beef barbacoa which is our Mexican uh, barbacoa dish and they go how do you know how to do this and I'm like come on you know <laughs> so we're, we're trying to do it I mean I'm I'm talking about EU so I'll give you a perfect example I had a hard time trying to figure out about ingredients in the beginning and I started doing research and everything. So that's why right now we are a little bit more heavy on the Mexican side. Um, it's not intentional. The only reason is, is that those are the ingredients that I could source out easier. So some of the other Latin ingredients have been harder. It's like, let's say the typical South American stuff has been harder for me to source. So in the beginning, it was easier for me to source out the Mexican stuff. Uh, but talk about the EU. So the company is based in Germany. My salespeople are in Spain, so I speak Spanish to them. And the warehouse is in the Czech Republic. So when wow. I place the order, I'm placing it to the guy in Spain. The German part, they hardly do anything. And then the truck comes from the Czech Republic, which is great for me because the shipping cost isn't exorbitant. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how I get my Mexican products. So, uh, you know, it's, it's cool. Huh. Well, it's funny you mentioned Peru because my girlfriend is actually from Peru. We were living in Zagreb um, and she went to your restaurant and that's how I first had heard about it. And okay. she gave, you know, rave reviews maybe uh, six months ago or something. Yeah. Last last school semester she was over okay. there and yeah, she and she always complains to me about the lack of Latin food yeah. in Zagreb. So. so to give you an example, I mean, my our, our chicken dish is called ají de gallina. So if you've been to Peru or had it from her... You'll know, so ají de gallina is like a staple for uh, chicken in Peru. It's one of the home-style dishes. So it's basically, ají is a chili, gallina means uh, old chicken, basically. And it's creamy chili chicken. And uh, so on our menu, it's actually called itas. Ita is my mother-in-law, and it's her, it's a short name for abuelita, which is grandma. Mm. So it's basically grandma's chicken. 
and it's her recipe. It's one of my dishes that she would make for me whenever I need a pick-me-up or she'd see I'd be stressed out or just something special. She'd make the ají de gallina for me. So I even asked her when I was doing this concept, I said, hey, I'd like to do this recipe in your honor and actually name it after you. And she was like super happy that I would do that. And she was touched. But for me, it was like I was touched with her because she showed me different flavors and different things. And, you know, I love Peruvian food. So in the future, uh, right now, Fuego is so small that we really can't uh, expand the menu the way I really want to uh, just because of logistics. Uh, so right now we don't have any fish on the menu, which is sort of funny uh, for being a Peruvian place. I would love to have ceviche. I'd love to have some other stuff, but that's going to be for Fuego number two when we have a bigger location. But for now, I mean, we're still trying to showcase, like I do a Cuban roast pork, which is my Miami heritage. I have a Cuban sandwich that I would put on par with any Cuban sandwich in Miami. I do my own little change a little bit. So I've even had a couple of my friends in Miami go, that's not a proper Cuban. I'm like, well, it's a proper <laughs> Cuban the way I want to. So, you know, yeah. Um, but uh, we're trying to do it as authentic as possible. Everything's fresh every day. And, uh, you know, we just want to make people happy and give them a different alternative here in, here in Zagreb. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's really cool how you've been able to pay tribute to your family, you know, through food. That's really cool. Um, yeah, well, I think in essence, that's what food is about. I mean, food is about family. Food is about celebration. Food is about that closeness because it doesn't matter if you don't speak the same language. I mean, that's why they say food is a, you know, a language that you, you if you give somebody a, a bowl of something and they'll try it, they'll give you a reaction whether they like it or not. And you'll, you can actually bond over food without having to speak a common language. So for me, I mean, we try and balance that. I mean, I have people in our kitchen that don't speak Croatian. I have people that don't speak Spanish. I have people that don't speak English and we're trying to, it, it's a little juggling act because I do want to make it authentic. So our, our cooks, when I'm not there, they're, they're Latin. Um, so right now they're learning about being in Croatia. They're, you know, learning to speak the language. And it's funny to see these guys, you know, uh, open up and, you know, start chit-chatting in Croatia. And I looked at them like, where'd you learn that? You know, and it, it's just cool. And then they say, oh, one of the customers taught me. So for me, it's we're trying to build a little community and we're trying to build something that is special. So when you come into Fuego, I want it to be like you're getting transported to someplace else. So our color scheme is different. Our ambience is different. And, you know, look at it as like, I want it to be like your time warped into some place that you go, oh, I'm not in Zagreb anymore. And that's what we're trying to feel and make it be that you can actually have a dish that you can't get any place else in Zagreb and get transported and, you know, try our dessert. You know, you know the idea is you're going to go, oh, look, I'm on this beach someplace because we have a coconut dessert. And like, you know, just we want to give people an experience. Hmm. Well, it certainly sounds like you've accomplished that. Um, you know, Richard, we're running low on time here and you already went ahead and answered the last question I had prepared, which was, uh, what do you think the importance of food within culture and why it's important to preserve that aspect of culture? You know, you pretty much just hit the nail on the head right there. Yeah. Um, but you know, I want to tell you again, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know you're a busy guy, got a lot of, a lot of projects going. It was cool hearing about those and definitely Fuego is on my list when I return to Zagreb in, in, in a month. Yeah, I will for sure. Yeah, what part of what part of Croatia are you in, by the way? Right now, I'm in Makarska for the summer. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah. Nice. Jealous. See, that's <laughs> the one thing I got to tell you is like when I when I hear about everybody going, oh, you don't know more. I'm like, oh, you suck. <laughs>
<laughs> so uh, I'm gonna I'm actually going to Pula this weekend. So oh, nice. Gonna, yeah, I, I've got a little project. We're doing a gypsy table at the end of the month, so I'm doing some additional scouting and all that stuff. So um, yeah. But, okay, cool. Well, I'll definitely have to drop some links in the podcast to all your okay. you know different projects so people can find you. And you know, thank you again, Richard, for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And like I said, anything that I can do to reinforce how amazing Croatia is, is it's, it's an important thing. That's it for today's episode of the All Things Croatia podcast. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you all enjoyed it. You can subscribe to the Patreon and check out the All Things Croatia Instagram page to stay updated. Feel free to reach out to me with any questions, tips, or ideas, and make sure to tune back in to the next episode. Thanks again, and vidimo se!